Okay, so let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you for your servant, David. Thank you for the way he poured out his heart to you in prayer and song. And we ask now that as we study his life and study some of his songs, that you would um, pour out our hearts towards you, that we would um, draw near, that you would draw near to us, uh, that we would know um, you to be that sure and everlasting foundation for, um, for all of our hope and faith. So we ask all of this through the strong name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. So um, I'm not sure if you know this, but this is going to be a five-part series on King David and the Psalms. And I certainly got interested in this because I'm going to move a little closer to you. Because I just, I love thinking about the life of David and trying to understand David's life and what drew him to write these beautiful psalms. And we're going to talk about, well, did he write them and what, what, is, what is that all about? But um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on David and Saul's life first. And I don't know how much you remember. I mean, this is, I feel like this is classic Sunday school because we're going to talk about David and Goliath. I mean, that's, that's what I remember most from Sunday school as a child. It's not funny, but um, do you all remember what, we remember David and Goliath. What else do you remember about King David in the early part of his life? Do you remember? It's all in 1 Samuel. So if you're doing the Bible in your blog, you'll end up seeing it at some point. So maybe this will be a little teaser for when you get to it. Any recollection of what else happens to David in those early years? He kills Goliath with the little stone and the sling, the little boy against the big giant. Um, Yes, and we think of the number one bad thing, which is Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And and do you remember which psalm we sort of associate with that? There's well, Psalm 50, 51 is a psalm that's probably the most famous psalm that we associate with a specific incident in David's life. So of course I decided not to do it during this Aquarius years, but because we, we hear so much about it, and actually uh, Dr. Genelette talked about it. He just finished this fall, you can listen to the audio online, I'll do a little advertisement for it, but he did a great series on the psalms as prayer and how we use the psalms liturgically in our prayers, in uh, morning prayer and evening prayer and in Compline especially, but it's all throughout. We see it also in communion services that we use psalms in our worship. We even said, was Psalm 121 this morning, we said together, what a wonderful psalm. That one's a psalm of a sense. I lift my eyes up. And they would say that. That's the wonderful thing about the Psalms. They're um, written perhaps because of a specific incident, but they were always used in worship in the life of Israel as they worshiped at the ark and, and so surrounding that cult of worship. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So, well, let me just, you know, encourage you to hold on to your hat and I'm going to give you a brief overview of um, David's early life before. So you might not know this, but, but Saul is the first king of Israel. Before Saul, there was, um, you know, they, they had come, the Israelites had come out of Egypt, and of course Moses led them out of Egypt, and we remember that. He's, you know, led them through the wilderness. Um, through him, the Lord gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and also the, um, the, the template, the blueprint for building the tabernacle 
where they would worship the Lord and what that um, worship would look like as far as the sacrifices offered there and who would be leading worship. So essentially he designated the offspring of Aaron as the priests who would lead worship in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple once the temple was built under Solomon's rule. But there was no king. They didn't have a king the way the other ancient Near Eastern nations had a king. Moses was a prophet and he had um, he had authority to judge the people of Israel and so they'd bring to him any problems that they had and we see that um, in the first five books of the Bible that he's weighed down with how many cases he has to hear and his father-in-law Jethro says look why don't you give some of the authority and the anointing God's given you and impart it to 70 rulers so you don't have to judge among these tens hundreds of thousands of people so he does that and you'll see that Moses's successors throughout the next years if you were to go directly through the book of the the books of the Bible you know it goes chronologically at first almost yeah, for the first several books of the Bible so we have you know the first five books Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy and those are all books that have to do with um, they're written by Moses and have to do with them coming out of Egypt but go back and talk about creation so then chronologically going forward, we have Joshua and Judges, which describes the, um, the, the Israelites as they come into the promised land and how the Lord is going to give them this land that he promised to their father, Abraham, long ago. And so that t discussion of the conquest, well, the land wasn't empty. And the Lord brought them in, and this is one of the hardest things to reconcile, I think, as a Christian, as you look at scripture. The Lord tells them he uses the people of Israel as an instrument of judgment upon the people of the land who've been worshiping who worship pagan gods and so they ha he has rejected them from having the land and he brings in the israelites and he gives the israelites victory over them in battle so all of that to say there he gives them victory and then there are these different leaders joshua follows moses immediately but then after that there are the, there's the need for new leadership and there's almost a leadership vacuum and you see different judges arise during that period between Joshua, Moses' successor, and then Saul, who's the first king. And what you see throughout the book of Judges, you see all these different judges and how they would have, um, there would be chaos and war, and then a judge would arise and there would be peace. And then there would be chaos and, and war, and then another judge would arise. But there wasn't that unity that the people really longed for. And the reason why God didn't give them a king sooner was because he was their king. And he wanted them to go to him directly through his prophets and priests. And so when, um, when the people clamor and, and beg Samuel, who's the great prophet, beginning at the beginning of Samuel, we see that his birth is a miraculous birth. His mother Hannah was barren. And in chapters one and two, we see that the Lord opens her womb so that she can give birth to this wonderful child. And the child she then dedicates to the Lord and the Lord uses him. And it says at the beginning of 1 Samuel that not one of Samuel's words fell to the ground which means that he prophesied and he heard from Yahweh and um, Yahweh fulfilled everything he said. So everything Samuel said would come true. And so he was a great leader for the people of Israel, but they come to him anyway and they say, look, we really want a king. We want to be like all the other nations around us. And Samuel's distressed because he knows that they should see God as their king and not need to have this human that they can look to as their king. And yet the Lord consoles him and says, they're not rejecting you, they're actually rejecting me. 
but because they've asked for it, I will give them a king. Um, and they will have some sorrow in having a king because he'll lord over them and rule over them, but this is what they want, so they're going to get it. Um, so then Samuel goes and he anoints Saul. The Lord tells him to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin and all of these wonderful things. Saul is super tall. Saul is tall, and that's why everybody likes him. And he's also really good in battle. He's a great warrior. And so he's chosen to be king. The people love him. Um, And he's told that he needs to obey the Lord very specifically. And what happens leading up to David's anointing as king is that Saul disobeys the Lord, and the Lord rejects him as king. He's very arrogant in the way he continues to do. He does what he thinks he needs to do instead of staying very close to the Lord and listening directly to the Lord and obeying the Lord. So, I mean, all of that to say the Lord rejects him in 1 Samuel um, chapter, uh, let's see, it's chapter 15, or I think it's actually, let me just get it right. It's um, in 1 Samuel leading up to chapter 15. um, No, no, it is chapter 15, Saul is um, Samuel says, your house is over. You will not be, you know, your descendants will not be king after you. The Lord has rejected you from over Israel. And then after that, Samuel's grieving, and the Lord says, don't grieve. I've chosen someone else, and he's he's better is sort of like the idea. And so then there's that story of Samuel going. Does everybody remember Jesse's father's name is, or I gave it away. (laughs) <laughs> What's your name, Bob? Bob. Um, well, David. <laughs> David's father's name is Jesse, and so Samuel goes to see Jesse, and he, you know, they, he wants to anoint the first son of Jesse, who's tall and handsome, like Saul, and very regal. And he goes through all eight of his sons, all seven of his first eight, uh, you know, first seven sons, and then he says, "Don't." And the Lord says, "Nope, not him. Nope, not him." And so he, he asks Jesse, do, do you have anyone else? Are there any other sons? And Jesse says, oh yeah, the youngest is out in the field tending to the sheep. And so the shepherd boy, David, is brought in and the Lord makes it very clear, this is the one. And so he's young, he's not strong and powerful. He's not a big, mighty man of war. I mean, yet we'll see later on why he's the chosen one of the Lord. And so in, in that passage, um, the Lord says to Samuel, I look at the heart and not at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so we're going to get to that. We're going to see throughout the Psalms, as we look at the Psalms in the next several weeks, we're going to see what David's heart is like. Why does God choose David, and what is his heart like? Now, come on in. Um, so if you're coming in, we're looking at um, just a little bit of history about Saul and David. Um, So Saul was king and rejected by God, and then David is anointed as king by Samuel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And then what happens, but for the next several, several chapters, from chapter 16 through 31, um, it's sort of like Saul's a lame duck. He's still king, but there's this young man who's been anointed king to succeed him. And so the young man, David, um, it says after he's anointed, and you'll see that as that first little bit on your sheet, that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, from the moment he was anointed. And then it says just after that, it says that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. And so Saul's left to his own devices, and it gets really ugly. And so it gets ugly. He starts, he's oppressed by an evil spirit, 
and he needs someone to play music for him, and that's how David is introduced into his life. So David goes from living with his father to the royal court to soothe the angry and oppressed Saul with his music. And that's the first where we hear of David being musical. There are these different aspects to David's character, but we hear about him being a musician there for the first time. And then follows that story that we're all familiar with about David and Goliath. And once David kills Goliath, well, there's this sense, if you can imagine, if there's this giant threatening the people of Israel and saying, bring me your champion, who ought to be the champion for the people of Israel? It should be the king, shouldn't it? Shouldn't the king be the one to go out there and fight for his people? Well, Saul does not go to fight Goliath. There's no mention of him even contemplating going. Um, maybe it's because the spirit of the Lord has left him and he's a coward now without the empowerment of the Lord. But anyway, so um, Saul does not go. David goes as the champion of Israel. He has the faith to see that those who taunt the people of Israel, God's holy and chosen people, are really taunting the Lord. And the Lord will not stand for that. And he, in his great faith, goes against the giant, the giant in his um, he's a trained warrior and he's wearing all of this very expensive protective gear that was rare to have in that time and there David is, no gear he tries He tries on the king's armor but it's too big for him and he's not used to wearing it so he says, I'm not going to wear this, this is going to hurt me not help me, and he goes out and he picks up those five smooth stones and he slings them in his sling and the first stone he, sh he throws um, hits the giant and, and the giant dies and David um, takes his armor um, kills him and he has victory over him and so we'll see from the next several chapters after David and Goliath um, David is popular everyone loves him and they say that there's um, there are these people as the people see David going out and fighting the Philistines because Saul sends him out to fight other you know since he's good in battle he sends him out more and the women, when David returns back into the cities, um, the women come out dancing and singing to meet them. And they come with um, tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And it says in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel that they sing this refrain, and it's, we hear it again, we'll hear it again in 1 Samuel two more times. They sing, it's, it's, they sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so they're attributing to David greater honor, um, greater valor, greater courage than to their own king. And so, of course, King David or King Saul becomes very jealous. He becomes jealous, and he is afraid of him. He's afraid that David will kill him and take over the kingdom. Um, as well, if David weren't more noble, he just might. In that day and age, that would be um, something right to be afraid of and so Saul is jealous and afraid of David and it says from chapters 18 through chapter 26 Saul attempts no less than 10 different times to kill David he's pursuing David to kill him and David never tries to kill Saul it's said that David has even been given two chances where Saul was just right in his hands and not once did he try to kill him because he knew that he was the Lord's anointed. Um, so we see all throughout this drama, it's this drama goes back and forth. David's in the court of Saul and then he's afraid and he runs away. And his friend Jonathan is David's son and heir. And Jonathan basically has foregone his right to the throne because he sees, he thinks that David will be a better king than he. And he has great friendship for David. And so he, they make a covenant. And in the covenant, they say, all right, David's going to be king. Jonathan says, 
I don't want to be king. They need you to be king. You are the king that the Lord has chosen to succeed my father. So that also puts the kingdom in jeopardy in Saul's eyes. He is afraid. Um, Jonathan protects David. David runs away. There's even this moment where David asks Jonathan, am I guilty? Why is your father pursuing me to kill me? What have I done? And he's humble in that. And we see that's part of this little window into his heart is his humility, his willingness to say, what have I done wrong? I I probably, to look at himself first and say, is there something I've done that has incurred this wrong against me? Have I sinned? Um, And so we'll see that over and over again, that David is quick to ask, have I sinned? Um, And quick to repent when he does sin. So um, now as we get towards this particular psalm, we're going to see it's associated with one event in David's life. So just in general, let me give you two minutes on David and the psalms in general. You know that Moses, and I said this a moment ago, that Moses gave, through Moses, the Lord gave to the people of Israel all the rules surrounding worship at the tabernacle, at the Ark of the Covenant, Um, and that there they would do this, they would sacrifice this way, the furniture would look like this, the decorations would look like this, the priests would wear this, the anointing oil would be like this, all of these very, very specific rules. But we don't, so we get we get a lot of different senses through the Torah, through um, Exodus and Leviticus in particular, where all these rules are put forward. We see the sights, we see the smells, we see the structural pieces, but we don't know what kind of music is going to be sung in worship of the Lord. And so then when we get to First Chronicles, which talks also about David's life and his reign, we see that later on when David became king, he was known for having put out all of these rules and these ordinances about what they would sing, how they would sing, when they would sing, who would sing. He set aside some of the Levites specifically to sing. And there's this thought that he also set aside some people to compose different songs to be used in worship, not just um, to be used in worship at different points during the liturgy, but then also at different points during the year. So that when it was this festival, well, you sang all of these psalms. When it was this festival, you sang all of these psalms. And that leads us to the point that the psalms, which we say aloud in in church, and they are really songs. Psalms are songs, which is sort of like, well, yes, of course, but sometimes you need to make that uh, obvious connection. The psalms are all meant to be sung. And so that's why when we hear Psalter, we're talking about the songs. So David wrote music. We know that he wrote music or played music. We know that he instituted all these musical ordinances. And at his death, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. So we do think he actually wrote some psalms. We don't know because of all the psalms in the books of Psalms, there are um, 150 psalms in our Psalter. We don't know that, we think, he, we, we think for sure he didn't write all of them because some of them say of the sons of Korah, of Asaph, and so there were different uh, authors. But it's also possible that there were different schools of writing and that David, rather than authoring all of those ones that say of David, he authored, they they were authored by his school or in the style of David. But that being said, David is referenced many times over in the Psalms. And I think we can say with, with confidence, he did write some of them. And some of them are attributed to specific events in his life. So those are the five Psalms that we're going to look at in the next several weeks. So the Psalm for today is Psalm um, 56. And Psalm 56 is um, one that we're just going to, I'm going to read it out loud to you right now. And it's on the back of your sheet. 
So we'll look at the title in just a minute, but um, let's just, actually, do you want to sing it responsively since we're so, well, let's see, we don't have the little asterisk. So what we'll do is I'll read one verse and then you read the second verse. So I'll do odds, you do evens. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept account of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not on your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God is word I praise, in the Lord is word I praise. In God I trust. Oh no, it's my it's my in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Um, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Isn't that beautiful? So you can see, we're, we'll get into how is it a song in a few minutes, but, um, but basically there are five books in, within the book of the Psalms. There are five different sections, and you'll see if you were to read your Psalms, you'd see that Psalms 1 through 41 are book 1, 42 through 72 are book 3, uh, book 2, book 3 is 73 through 89, book 4 is 90 through 108, and then we, or 106, and then book 5 is 107 through 150. And so all of those different books kind of section it off. We think that that might have been something that they used in, to know when they were to sing those Psalms and what setting they were to put them in um, what context liturgically um, but we also know that um, Psalm the second book of the Psalms contains Psalm 56 um, so it, it also with the five books does anybody know why would five be an important number for the Israelites yeah exactly because the five first five books of the Bible the Torah the uh, Genesis Exodus Leviticus uh, numbers of Deuteronomy so there's this sense of the first five Five is a really important scriptural number and what's so interesting this little teaser not for anything I'm doing anytime soon but in the Gospel of Matthew the Gospel of Matthew it seems to be separated into five different sections it breaks down into five sections pretty easily and how interesting that Matthew is saying I'm writing scripture just like the Torah is scripture just like the Psalms are scripture so um, in these five books you see there are also different genres of Psalms there are um, different purposes for psalms being written. A psalm of petition, a psalm of deliverance, a psalm of thanksgiving, a song of lament. And we'll see that the genre of Psalm 56 is basically a petition for deliverance, but it turns, and you might have noticed that it, it turns into a psalm of thanksgiving in expectation of the deliverance to come. 
or it might be that he's remembering the pain and sorrow that he's in. Um, we're going to talk about how, why does it change and how does it change. And um, so then when we look at the title and the setting, the title, if you turn back, you'd see the title says to the choir master according to the dove on far off terebinths, a miktam of David. All of these are terms. <laughs> what the dove on the far off terebinths is probably the tune. The miktam, we're not really sure what that means. Um, so we think it might mean a little bit about, um, some people say it means an at uh, for atonement, as if it's a song surrounding confession, um, but we're not sure. Um, but this, like, uh, like, uh, like the other, there are 11, maybe 12, one is in dispute, other psalms that have specific references to specific events in David's life. And so the reference here is right in the title, When the Philistines Seized Him in Gath. So what happened in Gath? Well, if we were to go twice, actually, in this period between when Saul is rejected by God as king and David has been anointed, and we have these 16 chapters or 17 chapters, we're just waiting for David to come to the throne. And how is he going to get to the throne? Is he going to get to the throne through violence? Well, the answer is no. He is shunning violence, even though violence is pursuing him. Saul is trying to kill him, tries to kill him at least 10 times. And David, out of fear for Saul and fear for his life, once he knows Saul is really and truly out to get him, David, in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, he flees. It says, And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is where Goliath is from. You have to think that David was really afraid of Saul if he was going to flee to a place where he'd have killed their champion. He is fleeing, trying to stay incognito in Gath, um, at which he, um, one of the commentators says he has courage, great courage to do this, and he says it's the courage of despair. David despairs of any other safe place for himself. If the king is out to get you, there's nowhere to hide except in enemy territory. But he's, I don't know why he's forgotten that he killed Goliath, though. So there he is. He's killed Goliath in, in the setting, in the scene just before, in chapter 20, he has gone in to see the priest, and he's weaponless. He fleed from Saul weaponless. And he went to the priest at Nob, and he said, oh, yes, I need some bread. And he gives him the bread from the, the, um, the bread of the presence from the tabernacle. And then he says, oh, yes, and I also need a weapon. Do you have a weapon? And the priest says, well, I just have the weapon from Goliath, Goliath's sword. Do you want it? And David said, yes, that's a good sword. I'll take that. So there David is. He tried to be incognito. He goes into Gath, and he has David's sword, or Goliath's sword. What is he thinking? Um, so he's trying to hide, and he's not doing very well at hiding. And so the servants of the king, Akish, say, isn't this David? And they call him the king of the land. Word has gotten out that David was anointed to be king after Saul. And then they quote to each other, these servants of the king of Gath, they quote to each other the song that the women sung when David came back from killing Goliath. Didn't they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're saying, you've got to kill this man, at least to take revenge for the death of Goliath, is the implication. So it says in verse 12 of chapter 21 in 1 Samuel, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David is nowhere in all of the accounts of David, this man of war, this man of courage and valor. Nowhere does it say that he's afraid. He wasn't afraid of the giant. 
but here he is afraid of the king of the Philistines. He is afraid. And when we look back into Judges, we see another episode in um, the life of Israel when Samson, another Sunday school hero, remember Samson with the hair and Samson and Delilah, she, she betrays him and delivers him over to the Philistines because he's this great hero. He's really strong and she finds out from him that the only way his strength can be defeated is if his hair is cut. And she, while he's sleeping, cuts his hair and then calls the Philistines in and they capture him. And they shackle him with bronze shackles and they gouge out his eyes and they put him in prison to grind grist for the mill. And so that's what happened to, um, to Samson. And, and David, you know, he could be in very real danger. He's been seized by these people. We do think it doesn't say explicitly in the text, but he's brought before the king. He's in their custody. He's probably bound. He might very well be mutilated or killed and imprisoned for the rest of his life. So um, he's afraid. He has much to fear. Um, and so it's that place of fear um, that is the place where we find David. That's where he begins to pray this psalm that we have in Psalm 56. As you see, he talks about the enemies that have come out against him. He begins by saying, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. He is surrounded on all sides. He can't go home. And here he is in a foreign place with no one by his side, and he's in custody, and his life is in danger. So he has, he's in very real danger, and he calls out to the Lord. And what's so beautiful is he recognizes his fear. It says, you know, First Samuel, it says that he's afraid. And here, he's able to talk about his own fear. Verse 3, when I am afraid. And then what he does, he recognizes he's afraid, and in the very act of writing or singing or saying this psalm, he is calling out to God. He is on his knees. When he's afraid, he goes down on his knees to pray. And he prays. He says, when I am afraid, and then he says, I put my trust in you. And that is the kind of trust that is, um, despite, you know, despite one's emotional state. One commentator says that this trust is a deliberate act undertaken in defiance of one's own emotional state. Um, he is terribly afraid, and yet he still gets down on his knees. It's a physical act of faith, rather than it being something he feels. He still feels afraid, but then he reminds himself. He says these words, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Do you see that I've put that verse in italics just to show you that it's repeated again? Do you see how it's repeated again towards the end of the psalm? Uh, or in the next, it's like a refrain. So it's like verses and a refrain. And the refrain is important. He is telling himself this, singing it over and over again to calm his fears and to remind himself who's really in charge. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, we're going to look at the basis for David's um, trust and his, his um, lack of fear. How does his fear turn to faith? How is he transformed from pleading and fearing for his life to the last verse of the psalm? It says, you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life sounds very calm there, doesn't he? Assured, confident, hopeful. 
And I would say that that comes through that act of prayer in verbally and prayerfully on his knees, reminding himself of the mercies of God. And we're going to look at that in a little bit um, again. But I just want to show you, highlight to you one word, um, and this is something, a theme that we're going to see over and over again throughout the Psalms as we look at them in the next couple of weeks. There's this theme of imprecation. Imprecation is a big fancy word that talks about the verses in the Psalms that sound like this, sound like verse 7. For their crime will they escape, in wrath cast down the peoples, O God. He's calling down God's wrath upon other people, which sounds kind of rough to us. There are places all throughout the Psalms where the psalmist um, asks that the Lord would bring the um, evil actions of the wicked back upon themselves. There's a great verse from Psalm 7, verse 15. The wicked makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So we often, if you ever notice in worship, we'll skip a couple verses in our Psalms. It's because our lectionary and the Episcopal Church would like us not to say the imprecations in the Psalms. It sounds so violent. How can we pray this or say this in church? So why are we saying it in church? Well, it's in Scripture. So why is it in Scripture? What is the psalmist doing when the psalmist says things like this? Well, um, I have a little um, moment. Last week, I was—I told you all, I was told some, I was traveling, and I rented a car, and you know the rental car agreement is like, 10 pages long, and I'm extremely frugal. I, I really like to save money. And so, they, of course, they asked me, I'm, I've got my bags, I'm a little nervous, am I gonna make the connection, am I gonna, I get there, I you know, don't know where I'm going, it's a new airport, or it's an airport I haven't been in in 15 years, and there I am, and I'm trying to get my way to the rental car counter, I get there, there's the, you know, they have the reservation, which is always good, I'm always afraid they're gonna lose the reservation, and say, nope, no car for you. Um, but so I had a car, and then there, you know, the door's open, I'm trying to get used to the car, and he's telling me all these things, and I'm not really listening because I'm like, okay, I'm trying to get used to my new surroundings. He tells me that, do I want them to, do I want to return the car with an empty tank or a full tank? And he says that, well, you know, that if you want to return it with a full tank, the gas station around here, the, the gas is 379 and that's really expensive. And I thought, well, and he said, well, it's 350 if you return it with an empty tank and we'll just charge you up front. So I said, okay, sure, yeah, I'll do that. It sounded right in the moment. So then, of course, I get outside of the airport and get around, and gas is 310, 320. I was so mad. I was so mad because I made the stupid choice. Or so mad because they're fleecing me, that darn rental company. And so I, my blood pressure is rising, and I'm driving, which is never good to have your blood pressure rising when you're driving. And I've been just steeping in the Psalms for a long time in preparation for this. And I was like, oh, imprecations. The imprecations in the Psalms are a way of saying, someone has wronged me, and my blood pressure is going to go through the roof, and I'm going to go get what I deserve, I'm going to get justice, and I'm going to retaliate, you know, in that mindset, if there was violence, they would often retaliate, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And the imprecations in the Psalms, I propose to you, that those are really a way of saying, oh, it's in God's hands. He is the judge. He is the just one. And he'll bring about, you know, if there's some kind of cheating aspect to this rental car situation, he's going to bring it back upon the company. They're going to experience the consequences of their sinful, cheating, cheating, lying, uh, cheating, lying ways. And so I, I, I offer that to you that imprecations and the violence that we hear in the Psalms are really a way of saying, 
it's not for me to be violent and it's not for me to um, plead my cause and try to bring about justice in my own way with my own hands. I'm going to let my blood pressure stay low. I'm going to turn it over to God, who is the just judge. I'll let him determine what to happen. And I'll say, if someone is behaving um, immorally, then then it's in God's hands. He will, They will experience some consequences for that, and I can trust God in that and leave it up to I can give it up and give it to him. Um, so just one thought on that. And then the structure I put down for you, because you get to see I love breaking it down. A looks at one theme. B is another theme. C is a third theme. And then those three themes are repeated with something slightly different. So first, in the first couple of verses, David is the object of human hostility. Then he's exercising um, faith by voicing his trust, getting down on his knees in the midst of his fear, despite his emotional state, and stating his trust. And then see, he's still under oppression. He's sorrowful. And yet, then we see he's also the object of God's care. Though there are these others seeking to harm him, God is seeking to care for him. God counts all of his tears, records them in his book, and he... um, collects his tears in a bottle, which is just the most beautiful image of God's compassionate care for us. And then his trust continues to issue in prayer and an an immense statement of faith that I've put in bold on your psalm. And I'll I'll talk about that next. And so then David, after, um, after this prayer on his knees, he is probably also vowed in the midst of this dire situation said, how many of us, when we're asking for something, pleading on our knees, say, I'll go to church every day. I'll go to, I mean, every week, I'll always be in church. I'll, I'll read my, I'll do whatever you want, Lord, just help me here. It appears as though David might have said something like that, because then in verse 12 and 13, we see that he is fulfilling his vows. He has received deliverance, and he is so grateful for that deliverance that he is making good on his promises to God. So how do we get from this transformation of great fear to trust? Well, he states over and over again, and then he states very clearly, God is for me. This I know, that God is for me. He says that in verse 9. Um, God is for me. And we hear the echoes of the refrain also. And I put this on your sheet. You see it in um, you see it in the New Testament. We see it first in Psalm 118. And then we see it in Hebrews again. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God is on our side, then what do we have to fear from any one or thing, any other thing in our life? And that is also what um, Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8. He takes that and fleshes it out. Um, He fleshes out the idea that if God is on our side, then no other thing, no other thing that we might justly fear, whatever that might be that comes against you. For me, it was I was most afraid. I was certainly afraid when loved ones of mine were in trouble and danger, and I pled and cried out to God. But my greatest fear, honestly, um, in my life came when I was working on my thesis for my master's degree. And I I do still have some white hairs from it. And um, actually, my sister was saying, don't freak out. I I was sitting down. She was standing over me. She was like, don't freak out, but you have a couple of gray hairs. I said, oh, yes, I know. They came about when I was working on my thesis. And I woke up just paralyzed by fear because it came down to me. I had to do the work to finish that thing. And I was terrified that um, that it wasn't going to get done, that I was not going to somehow finish, that I was going to fail. That big fear of failure was right there. 
um, in the midst of that failure, a fear of failure. Even if I had failed, though, I knew God is still on my side. That He will not count that against me. In His great mercy, He is merciful and eager and, and um, ready to forgive us. And that's what we see when it comes to our sin. That through Jesus Christ, God has revealed once and for all that He is for us, not against us. And if He He's against us in our sin, and yet as we repent and believe in Jesus through Jesus and the death that He died on the cross, we see once and for all that God is for us. So we don't need to fear anything else because only God is to be feared, and He does not condemn us. And that's what St. Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. So what have we to fear? Because God is on our side, just like uh, God was on King David's side. So let's pray right now. Thank you, Lord God, for, um, for your gracious mercy towards us. Thank you for your compassion in sending to us a Savior, Jesus Christ, your only Son. Thank you for um, his willingness to go and die um, for us, that we might not be condemned but forgiven, that we might know that freedom and that joy that comes from knowing that we are safe, that you are on our side, so nothing else can be against us. So I ask that as we go out from here, you would give us good courage and great cheer as we face whatever we face in our daily lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.